lot of people, when they begin reading the Gospels, are surprised by uh, many of the things that he says. Jesus is, uh, is pretty provocative, and he says some rather surprising things. For instance, one of his most surprising statements is recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verse 34. Matthew 10, 34, he says, Do not suppose I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. That's often a very great surprise to people. He continues, For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against a mother-in-law. Okay. Imagine, if you will, all of the different Easter lunches that are taking place all around the world today. Millions and millions of families uh, are gathered together eating, eating Easter brunch, lunch. Um, imagine some of the tensions that exist at the table. Some family members have gone to church this morning to make a point to say that Christ is risen, and, and other family members have made an absolute point not to go anywhere near church this morning. Rico Tice, one of my favorite British pastors and, and uh, someone whom I am drawing liberally from this morning, Tice says, imagine sometimes the uncomfortable lunchtime conversations that are taking place or already have taken place today. Uh, so, darling, says the skeptical husband to his wife, how was the old rector at church today? You still believe in Adam and Eve and the Easter Bunny? Or maybe it's a university student who's recently come to faith in Jesus, and he goes home and he sits down with his family for lunch, and his brother chides him. Uh, so you're a Christian. I suppose now you're against sex before marriage and all of that, right? Maybe his aunt chimes in. What's it like to be on a first-name basis with a man upstairs? And, and somebody else says, so you have the truth and everybody else is, is mistaken. Now, I don't do the questions justice. Um, our family members know just the right way to push our buttons and get underneath our skin. They know just the right tone, and uh, hopefully your lunch this afternoon will be much more peaceful than that. But in the passage we're going to read right now, from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this little Corinthian church, and it was probably no more than 100 people large, uh, they too were, were being ridiculed, frankly, mocked about their beliefs, and specifically their beliefs concerning the resurrection. At this point in human history, the uh, Greek worldview was dominant, and the surrounding Greek culture that the, the, the church in Corinth was living in, uh, they thought that this idea of resurrection was lunatic. It, I mean, even more lunatic than it would feel today in a, on a secular college campus, per se. Because uh, at this point in time, everybody knows that the body is nothing more than a prison house, a prison cell for the, for the soul. If you're ever going to talk about salvation or whatever that word means, salvation at a minimum has to include the, the soul leaving this, this prison of the body. And then you have this little Christian sect. What, these people think that they're going to have Easter bodies? Really? Well, what kind of body will it be? Will it be your baby body? Are you going to come back like a, a little baby in diapers? 
Will it be your teenage body? Will you have to go through adolescence and puberty all over again? Have acne on your face? Uh, Will you come back as an old and wrinkled grandpa? Or will you, as everyone desires, to come back as a a dashing, handsome pastor? (laughs) Like the one standing before you. They, they threw out these contemptuous questions. And this little church, they're confused. They, they're looking for answers. So they speak to their spiritual father, the Apostle Paul. And this is how Rico Tice frames the question uh, for, for his audience at All Souls in London. And how, here, here's how I want to frame it for you. How can our bodies, which are buried, which disintegrate, which drowned Uh, which get cremated, which get blown up, how can these bodies that we have possibly be reconstituted and raised into something else? Um, How are we supposed to understand such nonsense? Because it's nonsense. Well, let's see. That's what we have here. Verse 35. Someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? And Paul says, how foolish, how foolish of you to scoff. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, when you sow a seed, you do not plant the body that that will be, but, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined and to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all, flesh, not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another. Birds, another. Fish, another. There are also heavenly bodies. There are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another The sun has one kind of splendor, the the moon another, and the stars another, and stars differ from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in, in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, and it is raised, and and here, maybe our translation doesn't quite do the word justice. It's raised a spiritual body, but but not in the sense of a ghost, a ghost-like body, a spiritual body, a body that is empowered and and kind of, uh, yeah, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. That's what Paul says. Comedian Woody Allen, maybe you remember the funny statement he made uh, about death several years ago. He once joked, quote, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> and I think we can relate. Are you afraid of dying? Really? Uh, I, if I'm being honest, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm afraid of at least the dying process. I'm not afraid of death. I mean, is any Christian here today afraid of death? But I am afraid of um, dying a a painful and and terrible death. I assume that's 
true of the majority of us. I find that that aspect of my bodiness rather disturbing. Uh, another thing that I find disturbing, I've read this passage many times before, but one word, you know how you're reading and, and sometimes just one word will capture, uh, just jump off the page at you. The word that stood out to me, uh, it's the word, did you catch it? Perishable. That's how Paul describes us. When, when you hear the word perishable, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Perishable. Uh, for, it, for me, it's the produce at our grocery store, right? It, for me, it's how quickly my bag of spinach, which I love so much, I actually do, uh, how quickly it goes bad. How, how quickly our, our bodies go bad. And one of the most uncomfortable truths about being a human being is it is very easy to kill us. It does not take much, no matter what precautions we take, what what safety gadgets that we use, we are easy to kill. All it takes is one rogue cell in our body, right? One one car crash, uh, just the right bacteria that decides to attack us. Uh, I don't want to be perishable, but but you and I so so quickly are. There are two pictures, two pictures that Paul uses in this passage to describe the resurrection body that we have to look forward to. Both of these pictures he gives are taken from the natural world, and we're going to look at those now. The first picture is seed, and the second picture is star. First of all, seed, and I'm taking this right there out of verse 36, where he, we read this, that what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When a seed is sown metaphorically, it, it dies and, and is buried. A seed falls into the ground. It is covered by dirt. It, it goes metaphorically, it goes into the grave. And there in the grave, in the darkness, under the, it, the outside of that seed, you know, starts to break down. It starts to decompose. Um, it's horrible, at least as far as the seed is concerned, <laughs> But that, of course, is what, what must happen if the new part is, is ever going to appear. And here's what Paul is saying. Death, as terrible as it is, death is a necessary condition of resurrection. Death is a condition of resurrection. Have you ever heard this German word before? Never heard it before um, until this week. But uh, Goethe Sacker. I'm, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it. Goethe Sacker. Christians... Uh, Christians from previous eras, they called cemeteries Goethe-sackers, which when you translate that into English means God's acre. Because in that little acre, many seeds have been sown which are awaiting the harvest. My mom died in 1999 in Phoenix, and three months later, Aaron, Hannah, and I ended up moving away and going to seminary in Mississippi and from seminary, we moved to Boise in 2002, and um, you know, I've been here ever since. But it had been 15 years since I had visited my mom's grave uh, until the 2014 Fiestable when we went down and watched Boise State play my alma mater, the University of Arizona. And um, I went, I, it was, I, mean, I couldn't remember it, and, but then I, I went and I, I took some pictures of her grave. And you know how that is when you go and visit the place where a loved one is buried, it's powerful. It really is. And I, it's powerful for me even, I have a very cheap 
cell phone that has no storage on it whatsoever, but like one of the four pictures on my cell phone, two of them are on my, my mother's tombstone. It's powerful to go back and, and, and just look at that, isn't it? Uh, well, may I suggest to you, the next time you go and visit a Christian loved one who has died, would you just stand there and look around and say, I am, I am standing in God's acre. This is God's acre. This is God's vineyard to be, his orchard. Now, if we want to be raised, we like seed have got to go into the ground, Paul says, which is terrible. It's horrible. We don't want to have to die. But because the resurrection is true, we are planted in God's acre. Next, where does Paul next take this uh, argument? He goes, on, he goes on into this discussion about continuity and discontinuity between the seed and the thing the seed produces. It's really a simple point taken from nature. You probably, I know you've thought about this before, but if you take an acorn, you, you just look at the acorn, there's no way to tell from that acorn that it has an oak inside of it. You just, no way. Take a watermelon seed, no way. If you didn't know any better, if you, look, if you simply look at the seed... Um, or what would be an Easter sermon without a visual representation. Okay. Bulbs are especially powerful metaphor of this. When you look at the tulip bulb, you see this muddy, graying, shriveled, I mean, it's just kind of nasty. When you look at the tulip bulb, there's, there's no way you would imagine that this is what could be born out of it. This is us. <laughs> this is a, br- a really good description of us right now. And this will be us. Those of you who are maybe in your 20s, uh, you will from time to time run into people who are, there, who are in their 40s or 50s uh, who knew you when you were a kid but haven't seen you since you've grown up. Uh, it can be one of the more irritating conversations that we have in life. Somebody comes up and says to you, hi, do you know who I am? And you're like, not really. Uh, well, I'm so-and-so. And you look at them, and, and they look at you. Uh, they haven't seen you since you were seven or eight, and now you're 25. They gasp, oh, you're a little Johnny, or you're a little Sally. And you're just, you know, this is such a cringy moment that we're, we're going through. But the point is, it's still you. It's your eight-year-old self transformed by a process of growth. And they can see that it's still you. They see it in your eyes and in your face. Uh, And I I think that's what our resurrection bodies are going to be like. We're going to look at each other and we're going to say, look at you. It still is you. Um, I always knew this is what you could be like. I saw glimpses of it before, but look at, look at you. Now you are the bulb given way to the bud. And I think our resurrection bodies, so yeah, continuity and discontinuity. Continuity, it is the seed. It's the same seed. It's the same bulb. It's the same same acorn. But discontinuity, it's, it's going to be the most true and essential you. That's what we're going to see. Okay, let's go on to the second one. 
stars. Verse 39 is where I'm taking this one from. This one, as as I was reading it, you might have found it a little difficult to follow. First time I read it through, I found it difficult to follow. But in essence, let me boil it down. What Paul is saying, God has given his creation different types of flesh. Flesh here is simply code word for physicality. God has given his creation different kinds of physicality. The the flesh of the cardinal is not the same as the flesh of the cow, which is not the same as the flesh of the clownfish. All of them are are forms of physicality, uh, yet all of them are different. But even in a more profound way, uh, he goes on the sun, moon, and stars. They're also physical, yes, but they they do not consist of what we would say flesh. They are physical, but what they consist of, in Paul's language, they consist of glory. Bright, radiant, ah. and, and actually some people, when they've interpreted 1 Corinthians 15 before, they, they've reached the conclusion that what, God, what Paul is speaking about is like when we have our resurrection bodies, somehow or another we're going to sh- glow, <laughs> Oh, which, you know, sounds a little weird. <laughs> you know, electric light bulbs. And, uh, maybe, maybe. But more likely, when he describes, the more likely interpretation, when he describes the new body as having glory, that's in contrast to all of these other descriptors he has of the old body, of our old bodies being uh, dishonorable, of um, shameful humiliation, uh, C.S. Lewis, he was trying to answer the question, what does it mean for our bodies to be raised like the sun, moon, and stars in glory? And he said this. He said that God will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating with energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. He says it'll be kind of like God brings out a full stainless steel mirror in which God is like reflecting um, back to himself his own perfection, his own power and delight and goodness as it has been you know, re-imprinted on us. Jesus, Lewis says that's what we are in for. That's what we have coming for us. Nothing less is how he finishes it. Nothing less. That still begs the question. Um, well, okay, what, what age We'll go back to the question from the very beginning of the sermon. What age will our resurrection bodies be? Now, you you may have never thought of that before, um, or maybe you have, but in the Middle Ages, Christian theologians spent a lot of time trying to spill their theological ink and answer the question, what age are we going to come back in our resurrection bodies? The most famous answer that was given was provided by Thomas Aquinas, who said that at the resurrection, we will come back all of us will come back age 33. You say, why age 33? Because Aquinas thought that 33 was the age that, that Jesus died. And we, we know that it was, he was probably closer to 37 or, or 38. But, but, but surely, God, you've got to do better than 33 because 33 is not glory. <laughs> there, there has to be something better than that. One of the... Um, one of the more interesting suggestions is, was made by J.R.R. Tolkien. If you have ever read, and I think it's an appendice to 
at the, at the end of the return of the king, the tale of er <clears throat> Aragorn and uh, Arwen. And in that tale, uh, Aragorn dies, and his body's lying there. He's laying in state. And here's, what, here's Tolkien's stab at, at trying to get what will the future glory be like. He says, he says of Aragorn, Then a, a great beauty was revealed in Aragorn, so that all who came after there to look upon him uh, in wonder, uh, they, they looked upon him in wonder, for they saw that the, that the grace of his youth and the valor of his manhood and the wisdom and the majesty of his age were blended together. And long there he lay, an image of the kings of men in glory, undimmed by the breaking of the world. What is Tolkien trying to get across uh, here? Well, he, he says something. He says something that uh, parents can appreciate. There is a unique beauty in your two and three-year-old children. I mean, something that's, that's, that's almost hauntingly beautiful, that once they grew up, grow up and then you go back and look at old pictures of them in their two-year-old state, it makes you almost want to cry because you're like, can I just keep you like this? <laughs> you're so adorable. You're so cute. Um, but then there's another kind of beauty, it's the beauty of a young man or a young woman in their physical prime. It's the beauty, Aaron and I have a picture on our books, uh, bookshelf where we're posing together, when we're dating in college, and we look pretty good in that photo, especially her. <laughs> and there's that beauty, the beauty of the physical prime. And then there's a final beauty, isn't there? The, the final beauty of old age. There's a, there's a wisdom and a nobility. You think of your favorite picture of your grandma or your grandpa, that picture and what you see in that. You see, all of those beauties are, in Paul's language, glories. And in this life, all of those glories are spread out so that you can't, you, you can't, you only get it for just a little bit of time. But, but Tolkien says when, when real glory is going to come in our resurrection bodies, they're all going to be blended together into one. Majesty will be blended together. Which has led some people to actually conclude that our res, in our resurrection bodies, we will appear ageless. Not that we don't have any age and not that we won't be fully human, but, there, but because all of these... These majesties are blending together. We'll, we'll appear, that's how Lewis describes it in The Great Divorce. It, it appears as though nobody was of any particular age at all, is what he says. Okay, one final thought and implication before uh, moving on from th this topic. And it's a very, this is a tough one to, <laughs> to wrap our minds around. Um, I, I think that we're going to be, after the resurrection, we will be more physical more physical than we are right now, not less. Go ahead, pinch your, pinch your hand real quick. Yeah, you can feel that. I'm pretty physical. <laughs> We're all, uh, how do you be more physical than your physicality right now? Well, we have five senses, don't we? Some of us have dropped a few of those senses. <laughs> We're wearing bifocals, trifocals, quadrifocals. We can't hear anymore. Some of us have three and a half senses. But, but what happens if you take our five senses and you double those and make ten? What is that like? It's very hard to explain to a person born blind what it's like to see the color red. What is red like? 
Is it is red like the sound of a trumpet? And you're like, well, sort of, yes, yes and no. Um, what if in the new heavens and the new earth, what happens when we have a thousand senses? Writes one author, uh, this is good. What you will be compared to what you are now is what you are now compared to a tomato. <laughs> you are going to blossom in places you, you didn't even know you had buds. Your, your resurrection body is going to be uh, as far, uh, far removed from your present body to a tomato. <laughs> Friends, it's all because of Christ. You say, how can these silly little Christians believe these totally lunatic ideas? It's, it's all because of, of Jesus Christ. Christ is the prototype. Uh, earlier in the passage, I don't have it in your printed in your bulletin, but early on in, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that there were hundreds and hundreds of people who met the risen Christ. This, this was not a case of Jesus appearing to like two or three This did not happen in in a corner. This is how Christianity started. He appeared to hundreds of people who said to their neighbors and to their friends and to their relatives, look, I know this is nuts. I know this doesn't make any sense. I know this is against the laws of nature. I never thought I could believe in anything like this, but I saw him. I talked to him. I I touched him. And, And overnight, they ended up adopting a worldview that the rest of the whole rest of the world thought was lunatic. I mean, this is such an unpalatable worldview, both for Jews and for Greeks. And yet you get this 100% unanimity, uh, unanimity of people who, who say that there is a man who has been bodily resurrected and therefore has proven himself to be the son of God and therefore there is going to be a resurrection of the body and that is what we are basing all of our hope on. And there are other reasons uh, that we believe in the resurrection, and um, I'm not going to go into those this morning, but you know, I would say to you that if you're here and, and you are skeptical, uh, I would admit none of us are without our bias. Every single one of us are, are chalked, shot through with bias. We all have predispositions towards believing this, this message or disbelieving this message. And a lot of those predispositions are, are largely because of the communities that we grew up in. And, um, but I think if you will just give it a chance, if you will just investigate this, if you will just look into it, I mean, most Christ, non-Christians I meet, they're not non-Christians because they, they rigorously researched this and thought about it. Most people are non-Christians because they just don't, they don't think that God really matters in their lives. They just, they, you know, it's fine. Whatever you believe is good for you, but I'm doing fine with my life. If you would just research it, could, would you consider going through a Christianity Explored class with Rico Tice? He's the one who wrote that. Um, it's a great class. And one of the reasons it's such a great class is it's not salesman It's not about closing the deal with you. It's very respectful of the person. But would you, would you be willing to investigate the Christian faith? Then let me say something to our high school students. Most of you are going to go off to college, and you will probably get asked a few contemptuous questions about your silly beliefs. There will be plenty of people who will roll their eyes at you at your uh, at the beliefs you were raised with. Here's one of my pieces, my piece of advice. Uh, for those of you who are about to go off to college, 
Start with the resurrection and move out from there. Um, There are going to be lots of questions that, lingering questions that you have. I've mentioned mentioned a lot of them from the pulpit before. Relationship of faith to science. The philosophical problem of evil, the plurality of different religions. Why are there so many different religions in the world? And you got questions about that. But you know, that's not the center of our faith. The center is on whether or not this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was ever risen from the dead. I've likened it before to Christianity. I said Christianity is like a big swimming pool with a shallow end and a deep end. The shallow end, the shallow end, you've got your controversies. You got your different interpretations. Now, normally we think that the, that's the deep end. The deep end is the controversies. No, no, the shallow end is the controversies. And if you dive into the shallow end, you are going to get hurt. No, the deep end is, is the central core, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, and the resurrection of the dead. What I want to suggest to you is the most important thing for you to do in order to retain your faith is to figure out whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. You're coming to a fork in the road uh, where you have to determine, is this just what my parents believe or is this what I truly believe? Finally, uh, for all the rest of us, I'll conclude right here. Let me try and do my, my best contemptuous voice, my best scornful voice. I, I, I did not practice this earlier today, so I, it may not work, but I, I have a contemptuous question for you. Here it is. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? That is the other contemptuous question which gets asked in 1 Corinthians 15. As, as Brian so appropriately started the service out with, um, death cannot really kill you. Death can sting, but her sting is, is stingless. It has no poison. You, you can die... And dying is terrible, but dying can never kill you. All it can do, if Paul is to be believed, all it can do is make you better. It's as Joni Erickson Tata once said. She said, somewhere in my broken, paralyzed body is the seed of what I shall become. Somewhere in my atrophied, useless legs are the splendor of glorious ones Yet to come, do not let the winds of mockery uh, move you, brothers and sisters, even when it comes from those who love you most. The poison is gone. The sting is stingless because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He is risen indeed. Amen.